this is a program, a series of programs on a way to God for today. And so I will be talking to you about meditation, about prayer, and about things that are intimately connected with prayer, things like love, joy, peace, life, freedom, silence. And I've chosen to begin with silence. And I'll tell you why. Because any way to God has to be a way through silence. If you ever come to union with God, you must pass through silence. What is this silence? Let me explain it to you by means of a simple tale that we have in the East. There is this great king who goes to visit a spiritual master. And he says to the master, I'm a busy man. Could you tell me how I could be united with God, but give it to me in one sentence? And the master says to him, I'll give it to you in one word. What is that word, says the king. And the master says, silence. And how would I get silence, says the king. Meditation, says the master. Meditation, incidentally, in the East, the Sanskrit word dhyan, that means not thinking about, but going beyond thinking. So the master says, meditation. And the king says, and what is meditation? To which the master replies, silence. How will I find God? Silence. And what is, how do I get silence? Meditation. And what is meditation? Silence. Well, I imagine while I was telling this tale that you got the secret. Silence means going beyond words and thoughts. What's wrong with words and thoughts? You know what's wrong with them? They're very wonderful. But God is nothing like what we say he is, and he is nothing like what we imagine or think he is. That is what is wrong with words and thoughts. And most people will not accept this they cling to their images of God, and that is the biggest obstacle to their getting to silence. Would you like to experience this silence that I'm talking about? Well, you'll have to do three things, which I'm going to recommend in this program. The first is understanding. Understanding what? Understanding that God isn't anything like the idea that you have of God. You know, in the country I come from, India, we've got plenty of roses. But let's suppose that I had never smelt a rose in my life. And I say to you, what is the smell, the fragrance of a rose? Could you describe that? Go on, describe it. You see, if you cannot describe a simple thing like the fragrance of a rose, how could anybody describe the experience of God? Whatever words he uses, they're quite inadequate. God is totally beyond that. So now you have it. That's what is wrong with the words. There is this great mystic who wrote The Cloud of Unknowing, 
a great Christian book. And he says, do you want to know God? There's only one way of knowing him. You know him through non-knowing. You have to get out of your mind and your thinking. Then you may grasp him with the heart. And St. Thomas Aquinas, that great Christian theologian, says about God, only this can be said with certainty, that we do not know what he is. You know, that is what the church tells us in very solemn language in the Second Lateran Council. She says, any image that we have of God is more unlike him than like him. Now, I know what some of you are going to say to me. You're going to say, if that is true, what about scripture? Well, scripture doesn't give us a picture of God, doesn't give us a description of God, it gives us a direction. Because no words can give us a picture of God. Let me explain that. You know, in my country, India, let's suppose I'm walking towards Bombay. And then I come to the signpost that says Bombay. And then I say, well, what do you know? Here it is, Bombay. And I look at it and go back. And people say to me, did you get to Bombay? I say, oh, yes, I got to Bombay. What is it like? You know, it's like a, what is like a board, see, painted yellow. And there are words on it. Uh, the one looks like a B, one looks, do you see that? I missed the point because that signpost isn't Bombay. In fact, it isn't like Bombay at all. It isn't a picture of Bombay. It's a pointer. That is what scripture is, a pointer. In the East, we have a saying, when the wise man points to the moon, all that the fool sees is the finger. Imagine that I am pointing to the moon, and I say, moon. And you come running up and say, oh, is this the moon? And you're looking at the finger. This is the danger and the tragedy of words. Words are beautiful. Father, what a lovely word to indicate God. But the church herself teaches us that is a mystery. God is a mystery. And if you take that word, Father, too literally, you'll get into trouble because people will be asking you, what kind of a father is this, that he allows so much suffering? See, a mystery, unknowable, unintelligible, beyond the mind. One more way of showing you the same thing, but I think you'll find it profitable. Imagine that there is a man born blind, and he says to me, what is this color green that everybody's talking about? How would you describe that to him? Impossible. And then he says, listen to his questions. He says, uh, is it hot or is it cold? Is it long or is it short? Is it rough or is it smooth? It is none of these things. Because the poor man is asking the questions from his limited experience. But let's suppose I were to try. I'd say, you know, that color green, I'll tell you what it's like. It's like soft music. And one day, the man recovers his sight. And I say to him, well, did you see the color green? He says, no. You know why? Because he's looking for soft music. He got stuck to that idea of green being soft music. 
So when he was looking at green, the color green, he failed to recognize it. That's another story we have in the East of this little fish in the ocean. Somebody tells the fish, what a mighty thing the ocean is. Great, marvelous. And so this little fish is swimming everywhere in search of the ocean, in the ocean. And all he finds is water. See, he failed to recognize. He got stuck to that word, ocean. Now, can it be that that is happening to us? Can it be that God is staring us in the face, but because we are clinging to some ideas, we fail to recognize him? That would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? So then we come to the second thing. I told you the first thing, if you want to attain to silence and you want to get to God, is understanding or readiness to realize that your ideas of God are all inadequate. And lots of people are not ready to realize that. And that's the big obstacle to prayer and to meditation in their case. The second thing you need to do if you want to get silence, it is, now get ready, because some of you are going to think that this is absurd. It's almost incredible. But all you need to do is look, listen, hear, see. That's all. That's all. Let me explain that. You know, in the East, we say, God created the world. God dances the world. Can you think of a dancer and his dance? They're one thing. They're not the same thing, but they're not two. There's a great English theologian who put it in as lovely and as profound a way. He said, God is in creation the way the voice of a singer is in a song. Let's suppose I were to sing a song. Let's suppose I were to say, Nearer my God to thee. You've got my voice. You've got the song. So intimately connected, though they're not the same thing. Now listen to this. Isn't it strange that we would be listening to the song and we don't hear the voice? that we're looking at the dance and we don't see the dancer? Isn't it strange that we should hear the song and not hear the voice? That we can see the dance and we do not recognize the dancer? Now you might say to me, well, does it mean that if we just look we will be given the grace of seeing and of recognizing? No. You may be given the grace of seeing and recognizing because this calls for a special way of seeing. You remember that lovely book, The Little Prince? The fox says something to the prince there that is marvelously put. He says, it is only with the heart that one sees rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. So what you need is heart hearing, heart seeing, 
there is an admirable Japanese tale that brings this out very well. This disciple goes to his master and he says, you are hiding the final secret of contemplation from me. And the master says, no, I'm not. And the disciple says, oh, yes, you are. Well, one day they happened to be walking along the mountainside and they heard a bird sing. And the master said to the disciple, did you hear that bird sing? And the disciple said, yes. And the master said, well, now you know that I haven't hidden anything from you. And the disciple said, yes. You know what had happened? He had attained heart hearing, heart listening. This is a gift that may be given to us if we would look. Another way of putting the same thing. You know, I keep giving you these various comparisons because some people will be helped by some and others by others. Imagine that I am looking at the sunset and a peasant comes to me and says, what are you looking at? You seem all enraptured. And I say, I'm enraptured by the beauty. And the poor man comes every day at evening to look for beauty. I mean, where, where is this beauty? He says, well, he can see the sun, he can see the clouds, he can see the trees, but beauty, he doesn't realize that beauty isn't a thing. Beauty is a way of looking at things. See, look at creation. Hopefully, someday, heart looking will be given to you. And when you're looking at creation, don't look for anything sensational now. You know, you may have heard of the God experience and you're, nothing sensational. Just look, just observe. And don't look at ideas, look at creation. And hopefully, it will be given to you because you will become quiet as you look. And silence will overtake you. And then you may see. That is what is brought out so beautifully in the Gospel according to John, where we are told in the first chapter, all things were created in him and through him. And then we have that lovely sentence which says, he was in the world, for the world was created by him, but the world did not recognize him. If you would look, maybe you will recognize. Look at the dance. Hopefully, you will spot the dancer. So those are two things I gave you now as a help to attain silence. Understanding and looking, hearing. There is a final thing that I'd like to recommend as a help to attaining silence, and that is the scriptures. The scripture is par excellence, the finger pointing to the moon. So we use the words of scripture to go beyond the words and to attain silence. How would you do that? You take a passage from the scriptures. I'm going to give you one of my favorites, John 7. You have it right here. And you begin to read. 
On the last day and the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried aloud, Anyone who is thirsty should come to me and drink. Now let's suppose as you're reading that, you're gripped by that sentence. What do you do then? You recite that sentence in your heart and you stop the reading. Anyone who is thirsty should come to me and drink. Anyone who is thirsty should come to me and drink. Something like a mantra. You keep saying it again and again until your heart is satisfied, until your heart is saturated. You don't think explicitly on the meaning of those words now because your heart knows the meaning. And when you have come to that point of satisfaction, then you react to the words. How would you react? Well, some people may react this way. They may say, anyone, do you really mean that, Lord? Anyone, saint, sinner, well, here I come, give me to drink. Or someone else may react by saying, I don't believe a word of this. What is this drink that you talk about? I have come to you so often in the past and you have given me nothing. That's all right. Here is someone who is frustrated, who is angry, and it's perfectly all right to talk to the Lord like that. Very good prayer, because you're honestly telling him what you have in your heart. Yet another person might say, I know exactly what you are talking about, Lord, because I have come to you in the past and you have given me to drink. Well, here I come again. So that is the way you react. Now, it is perfectly possible that a time will come when you will tire of reacting in words, when there will be sentiments welling up in your heart that will be so deep and so rich that no words will be able to express them. And all that you will be able to do will be to stay there helplessly in silence, responding to those words and to the Lord who said those words beyond any words that you could use and you keep to that silence as long as you are not distracted. When you are becoming distracted again, then pick up the book and continue to read until you alight upon another sentence. And so you see, here is a way of using the words of the scripture to go beyond the words into silence. It is read, recite, and react, and gradually the reaction will be silence. There's another way you can use the scriptures, and it is this. You get into silence first. You know, I suggested looking and listening. In future programs, I will suggest other things, like being aware of your breathing, be aware of the sensations of your body, that will bring you into silence. And when you get into this deep stillness, you recall a sentence of scripture or get someone to read a sentence of scripture to you. 
And do you know what will happen? Those words of scripture will be sort of etched in your heart. They will have such a powerful meaning for you. And they will deepen your silence because they will have a meaning which is quite beyond the mind. Won't those words that somebody reads disturb your silence? Oh, no. It's like, you know, the quiet and the peace of the evening. And then you hear the temple bell or you heard that hear the church bell ringing. And you know that sound deepens your silence. So that's what's likely to happen to you if you get into silence and then have a sentence of scripture read to you, or you read it yourself, or you recall it. Let me give you a variation of what I was saying when I first began to talk about scripture a few minutes ago. You can do this right after this program. You don't even have to open your Bibles for it. Take some of those lovely, lovely sentences that Jesus says in the New Testament. How beautiful they are. Come, follow me. Everything is possible to someone who believes. Do you believe that I can do this? Or that other sentence, peace, don't be afraid, it is I. Or that other sentence, do you love me? Now let's suppose you were to choose that sentence, do you love me? Imagine that Jesus Christ is standing right here in front of you and he addresses those words to you. Now you must resist the temptation to react. Don't say anything. Don't respond. Let the words reverberate within your heart. Let them resound within your being. And when you cannot contain it anymore, then react. Then give him your response. You know what's likely to happen here? You are likely to get into silence long before the response. A very simple and a very effective way of getting into silence. So you may want to try this at the end of the program. Let me summarize for you what I have said to you in this program. I have given you three royal ways to silence, three exercises. The first, to understand that God is nothing at all like what we think he is. The second, to look, to hear. Now mind you, I don't want you to think that by your looking you will create that silence. You cannot, because the silence I'm talking about is divine. It is a gift. You know, it is something like, let's say, someone who cannot go to sleep. He suffers from insomnia. You cannot create sleep, but you can do something. You could lie down or whatever in the hope that sleep will be given to you. So the second exercise, looking. And the third, scripture, using the word of God to get into silence. At the end of this program, I invite you to stay on here and to try that simple exercise that I gave you, to imagine that Jesus is standing in front of you and he addresses to you one of those lovely words of the, of the Gospels and you react, hold 
in your reaction in the beginning, and then when you can hold it in no more, you speak to him. What I want to do now is tell you a story which will bring out the whole spirituality of this looking and this hearing that I spoke of. Because you know I hold that a story is the shortest distance between a human being and truth. So this is the story. There was a temple built on an island about two miles away from the mainland. That's where the island stood. And in that temple, there were a thousand silver bells, large bells, small bells, bells made by the best craftsmen in the world. And every time the wind blew or the storm raged, the bells would peal out. And it was said that anyone who heard those bells would be enraptured and would be taken into a deep experience of God. Well, as the centuries passed, the island sank into the sea. And with the island, the temple and the bells. But the tradition persisted that those bells now rang out continuously. And if anyone had the gift of hearing them, that person would still be transported into God. Well, a young man was inspired by this legend, and he undertook a journey of hundreds of miles till he came to the spot opposite to which it was said that the temple had stood centuries ago. He sat under a tree, a large coconut tree, and he began to strain to hear the sound of those bells. But no matter what he did, all he could hear was the roar of the waves as they splashed against the shore, as they dashed against a nearby cliff. And that irritated him because he tried his level best to push that sound out so that he would get into silence and hear the sound of those bells. Well, to no effect. He tried for a week, and for four weeks, and for eight weeks, and then it became three months. Occasionally, when he became discouraged, he would hear the village elders at night talk about the tradition and about the people who had been given this grace, and his heart would glow within him. But he knew that a glowing heart was no substitute for hearing those bells. Well, after he had tried it out, for six or eight months, he decided to give it up. Maybe the legend wasn't true, or maybe the grace was not meant for him. He said goodbye to the people he was living with, and then he went to the shore to say goodbye to that favorite coconut tree of his, and the sky, and the sea. And as he sat there, he began to listen to the sound of the waves, strange. It wasn't a jarring sound. He discovered for the first time that it was a soothing sound. And it relaxed him, and he became silent. 
And as the silence went deeper and deeper, something happened. He heard the tinkle of a little bell, and he jumped up and thought, I must be producing this. I must be suggesting this to myself. And once again, he began to listen to the sound of the sea and relaxed and became silent. And the silence became deeper. And he heard it again, the tinkle of a little bell. And before he could jump up this time, it was followed by another and another and another and another. And soon he was hearing the glorious symphony of a thousand temple bells pealing out in unison. And he was transported out of himself and was given the grace of being united with God. The moral of the story is, if you want to hear the sound of the bells, listen to the sound of the sea. If you want to recognize the dancer, look at the dance. If you want to hear the voice of the singer, listen to the song. Look, listen. Hopefully, someday it will be given to you to see and to recognize in silence. In the last program, I talked to you about silence. Today, I want to talk to you about peace. Let me begin with a story. It is a story of two monks who had lived together for 40 years and had never quarreled even once. So one of them said to the other, don't you think it's high time we quarreled at least once? And the second monk said, all right, let's begin. What would we quarrel about? And the first monk said, uh, how about this loaf of bread? And the second said, okay, let's quarrel about the loaf of bread. How do we do it? The first monk says, well, this bread is mine, belongs to me. And the poor second monk looked at him helplessly and he said, okay, take it. The moral of that story is that peace is not necessarily destroyed by fighting and quarreling. You know what destroys peace? me. This belongs to me, and I'm not going to share it with anyone. When someone takes on that attitude, a fear and a selfishness builds up within his heart, and the heart becomes hardened, and that is the great enemy of peace, the selfish, hardened heart. Imagine a nation where a group of people owns a great deal of land or money or whatever, and they say, we're not going to share this with the needy or with anyone. Imagine that in the United Nations, every nation took this attitude. We're only interested in our own good, and we couldn't care less for others. How could there be peace in a situation like this, where there are hardened hearts, hardened nations? But let's not talk about nations. Let's talk about you and me. Look into your own heart. 
can you say, oh, there's a certain amount of quarreling and fighting in my life, but there is no rancor, no bitterness, no hatred. Can you say, oh, there is a fair amount of pain and suffering in my life, but there is no inner turmoil and conflict. There is a great deal of activity and action in my life, but there's no nervous strain and tension. Can you say that? If you can, you are a lovely oasis of peace in the vast desert of this world. And the whole purpose of prayer is to spread this oasis everywhere. How would we do that? Well, let's not talk about it. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. Close your eyes, and I am going to do the same, so that we can, together, you and I, do a simple spiritual exercise that won't last more than a minute or two. So close your eyes and get in touch with your body. Become aware of the feel of your clothes on your shoulders. The touch of your clothes on your back. Your hands, get the feel of your hands as they rest on something or touch each other. Get the feel of your thighs pressing against the chair. Your feet touching your shoes or touching the floor. Once again, your shoulders your back, your hands, your thighs, your feet. Again, shoulders, back, hands. feet. Now gently open your eyes and we shall end the exercise. Now I really wish I could be out there with you and get your reactions. What happened to you when you did this exercise that I proposed? Did you feel relaxed? Did you feel tense? Most people feel relaxed. A very few feel tense. Now, if you are one of those who feels tense, what I suggest is that you get in touch with your tension. What part of your body do you feel the tension in? and become as aware as possible of the tension, and you will gradually become relaxed again. In fact, if we were to do this exercise for five or 10 minutes, 
you know, many of you out there would begin to nod and doze. That's how relaxed you would become. Now, some of you will say, this relaxation exercise, does this bring the, the peace that you were talking about? Well, this isn't really a relaxation exercise, you know, it's an awareness exercise. All right, you'll say, but does it bring peace? Yes, it brings peace, even though you may find it hard to believe. You know what is likely to happen to you when you do this exercise? You're likely to come into yourself, and you're likely to feel all kinds of things, experience things, see things that would surprise you very greatly. You know, there's a lovely Indian story about God. He was tired of people. You know, they were always pestering him and asking him for things. So he said, I want to get away for a while and hide. So he collected all of his counselors and he said, now, where could I hide? What would be the best place for me to hide? And some of them said, hide on the top of the highest mountain on earth. And others said, oh no, hide in the depth of the ocean. They'll never find you there. And others said, the best place to hide would be on the far side of the moon. How would they ever find you there? And then God turned to his most trusted angel. And he said, where would you advise me to hide? And the angel smiled and said, hide in the human heart. That's the one place they will never think of searching for you in. Fanciful tale, isn't it? But it contains a deep truth. You know this simple exercise that I have proposed? It brings you to your heart. It brings you home. That's what it means to come back to your heart. You come home to yourself in a very simple way. All that you're doing is you're getting in touch with your body, but you're getting in touch with yourself, and that is important. And as I told you, in time, you will discover all kinds of mysterious things which will bring peace, and your heart will become soft, and the fears will disappear, and the conflicts will go. But for that, you need time. You know, there is no formula for instant peace. You have to find the time for it. All right, if you tell me you don't have the time, I'll compromise with you. And I'd recommend that you do this during the day. Let's suppose you're driving your car. Get the feel of the steering wheel. Get the feel of the seat of the car. Get the feel of your feet touching your shoes. Like, get in touch with your body. Keep your eyes open, of course. But for the rest, get the feel of the movement of your body when you're walking. That'll quieten you down. 
and hopefully you will get some taste of what this exercise can give you that you will be sufficiently motivated to try the real thing, to really sit down and get in touch with the sensations in your body. You know the way it is practiced in the East is this, you start from the crown of your head and you attempt to get all the sensations you can, face, neck, chest, etc., right down to the tip of your toes. Then you begin again in the crown of your head and go downwards. That's how it's practiced. Let me tell you some of the effects of this exercise. Though ordinarily this isn't done, you know. Ordinarily in the East, people are told, do it and you will see. All right, what's likely to happen to you if you do this exercise? The first thing is you're going to become present. You're going to get into the present. And that is an extraordinary thing, you know, to really come to the present. Are you one of those people who cannot remember where they've placed things? Are you one of those people who's always tense and strained and harried? Are you one of those people who cannot concentrate, who cannot remember? Well, you need practice in getting into the present, just what I'm talking about. You know, there was a great guru who was talking to a group of business executives and he said to them, just as the fish perishes, it suffocates and perishes on dry land, so you will perish if you get entangled in worldly affairs. The fish must get back to the water if it wishes to live. You must get back to your heart. So these poor business executives said, you mean we've got to give up our business and get back to the monastery? He said, oh, no, no. I didn't say get back to the monastery. Hold on to your business and get back to your heart. You see, getting back to the heart does not mean getting into some kind of mystical, mysterious faculty. No, no, no. It means come home to yourself. It means Get into the present, and you will live. There's another thing that this exercise will give you, and that is it will help you to slow down. You know, speed is a very wonderful thing. I have nothing against it at all. It's a great thing, speed. But when speed becomes hurry, that's a poison. The Japanese have a very interesting saying. They say, the day you stop traveling, you will arrive. The way I'd put it would be, the day you stop rushing, you will arrive. You know, that reminds me of a father who was shepherding his children through a museum, and he's saying to them, come on, hurry up, hurry up, because if you stop to look at everything, you'll see nothing. See, that's a parable of life. That's what all of us are doing. We're the whole time trying to save time and we're missing out on life. You know, it's something like Jesus saying, you gained the world, but you lost your soul. 
I'm reminded of a fellow who was driving once with his wife and he was, you know, he was crazy about speed. And then his wife looks at the map and she says, darling, we're on the wrong road. He says, never mind, we're making great time. So there it is, a parable of modern life. This is possibly what so many of us are doing. And you know what this exercise will do for you? It will slow you down. But you could do something else. You could slow down as a means to getting into this exercise better. How would you do that? Look, how long does it take you to get to work? 20 minutes? Make it 21. Now, some of you are going to think I'm crazy. Make it 21. How long does it take you to have breakfast? 10 minutes? Make it 11. Like, give yourself a pat on the back for every few seconds that you would add onto everything you're doing. Try it out for only a week. Then you won't have to believe me any longer. Slow down. You will come into the present. The third thing this is going to do for you, this exercise, and it is this. Uh, let's put it this way. You know, there was an Indian businessman who told me he was very afraid to get into meditation. He was very reluctant to get into meditation because he said, uh, you know, my business will suffer. Incidentally, these exercises that I'm giving you are for busy people, for active people, uh, for energetic people. I'm not inculcating any mystical withdrawal, far from it. All right, so this businessman said to me, I was so afraid to get into meditation. Now, when he practiced these exercises that I am recommending to you, well, his business was doing twice as well as before. Do you know why? Because he was more integrated. He was more centered. And he was doing one thing at a time. That's one of the great blessings of prayer, contemplation, mysticism. You begin to do one thing at a time, and you're totally there. So it's easy to see why his business prospered, why he was so much more effective and efficient. Now, before I go on, there's an objection that I'm pretty sure some of you are going to have. You're going to say, are these spiritual exercises? Is this meditation? That's right, spiritual exercises. You know, there are millions of people in the East who only do this and nothing else, and they attain heights of spirituality. That's the teaching of Christianity, isn't it? That God and spirituality is to be found in life, not by withdrawing from life. Remember in the previous program, I spoke to you about silence, and I told you God is found in life. The same thing here. Is it prayer, you will say? Well, it all depends on how you define prayer. If by prayer you mean talking to God, no. It isn't prayer because you're not talking to God while you're aware of sensations in your body, while you're aware of the movement of your body when you walk. But if by prayer you mean union with God, yes, sir, it is prayer. 
So you will find prayer and meditation in that simple exercise that I gave you of being aware of the sensations of your body. There are many other benefits that that exercise will give you. Spiritual benefits like acceptance, like a sense of perspective, but you find that out for yourself. What I'm going to do is propose for those of you who would not have the patience or the perseverance to go on with that exercise, two simple spiritual exercises. The first is called, I call acceptance, and the second, perspective. How does one do these exercises? Let's begin with the exercise on acceptance. You remember that prayer, Lord, give me the grace to change whatever can be changed, to accept what cannot be changed, and the wisdom to know the difference. There are so many things in our life that we cannot change. We're powerless. And if we learn to say yes to these things, we will find peace because peace is found in yes. You cannot change the ticking of the clock. You cannot change the death of a loved one. You cannot change the weather. You cannot change so many of your body's limitations and disabilities. Now make an exercise of all of this. The things you cannot change. Stand before each one of them and say yes. Because in doing that, you are saying yes to the Lord. You may find it difficult at times, then don't force yourself. But if you can find it in your heart to say yes, you are saying yes to God's will. And as the great Italian poet Dante says, in his will is our peace. Nearly 95% of the things that upset our peace are things that we cannot change. And if you develop this attitude, you will have peace even in the things that you are fighting to change. The second spiritual exercise that I suggest now is perspective. What's that? Think of the time when you were a child and you clung to something so tenaciously you did not want to give them up. You thought you would not be able to live without them. Or think of the, some of the things that you detested and hated when you were a child, or some of the things that you feared. How many of those fears and likes and dislikes persist till today? What happened to them? They passed away, did they not? Well, the exercise is the following. Make a list of the things that you are possessive of, that you are dependent on, that you don't want to let go of. And of each one of these things, say, this too will pass away. And make a list of the things that you dislike, that you cannot put up with. And of each of those things, you say, this too will pass away. And you make a list of your fears for the future. And of each of those fears, you say, 
this too will pass away. Well, I have proposed a number of exercises to you in this program, so I want to summarize everything I have said. The first exercise that I gave you was that great exercise of awareness of body sensations. You will find wisdom, acceptance, perspective, and so many other spiritual graces in this exercise. But you may want to try out some of the other ones. You may want to try out the exercise of slow down, or that other one, do one thing at a time. In fact, if you practice that exercise, you will be greatly helped if you internalize verbally every action that you are doing, like, now I am picking up my pen, now I am writing in the book, now I put the pen aside, now I close the book. This will seem strange to you, but you will not be able to judge these exercises until you give them a try. So try it. And then there are those last two exercises I proposed, the one of acceptance and perspective. In the next program, I will be talking to you about something that is intimately connected with these, joy. But I invite you at the end of this program to stay right there and to try out that exercise that I suggested of being aware of the sensations of your body. You will get mighty little in the beginning, perhaps. You may find you are very distracted, but try it, and at the end of those 10 minutes, you will notice something of a difference. When Jesus was born, the angel sang of peace. And when Jesus died, he made a gift to us of his peace. My peace I give to you. So peace is a gift. We cannot produce it. We cannot create it. All we do by means of these exercises is dispose our hearts to receive it. Remember that story in the Bible of that Syrian general who went to the prophet in Israel so that he would be cured of his leprosy? And the prophet said to him, go and bathe in the river Jordan seven times. And the man was indignant. He said, don't we have better rivers in my country that I would have to, to, to bathe in this river Jordan? I thought that the prophet would come out and lay his hands on me and cure me. And one of the servants said to the general, Master, if the prophet had told you to do something difficult, you would have done it. He's asking you to do something so simple and easy. So try this simple and easy exercise. You can hardly believe the effects it will have on you. But when you experience those effects, you won't need to believe any longer. I want to end this program with those lovely words of St. Paul that could serve as a blessing on you and on me. 
May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard our hearts and thoughts in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the last program, I spoke to you on the topic of peace. I want to deal today with something that is very intimately linked with peace, and that is joy. One of the most frequently quoted sentences in Christian literature is that famous sentence of St. Augustine, where he says, our hearts were created for you, O Lord, and they are restless until they find their rest in you. Every time I hear that sentence of St. Augustine, I am reminded of another sentence made famous by one of our great religious mystical poets in India, a man called Kabir. He writes a lovely poem that begins with the following sentence. He says, I laughed when they told me that the fish in the water is thirsty. Take a little while to get that image. The fish in the water, thirsty. How could that be? We human beings, surrounded by God and restless. Take a look at creation all around you, everywhere. Trees, birds, grass, animals. You know something? The whole of creation is shot through with joy. The whole of creation is happy. Oh, I know there is suffering, there is pain, there is growth and decline and aging and death. You find that in the whole of creation, but no restlessness, no unhappiness, if you really understand what happiness means. Only the human fish is thirsty. Only the human heart is restless. Isn't that strange? What I want to explore with you in this program is why are human beings unhappy? And what can we do to change that happiness into joy? Why are people unhappy? For two reasons mainly. Because they have wrong ideas and they have wrong attitudes. Let's begin with the ideas. The first wrong idea that people have is that joy means being on a high, having pleasurable sensations, having fun. It's because they have this idea that people go in for intoxicants and stimulants and then they end up depressed. The thing to be intoxicated on is life. It's a quieter kind of intoxication, but it is lasting. So that's the first wrong notion we must get rid of, that joy means having a high. No. No, not necessarily. The second wrong notion, to think 
that we can chase after happiness. We can do something to get happiness. Well, I'm almost contradicting myself here because soon I'm going to tell you what we can do to attain happiness. But happiness cannot be sought in itself. Happiness is the offshoot of something else. You know, true happiness is barely an experience, so that when it is deepest, you're hardly aware of it. And that is the reason why it has been said, and so wisely and so well, that happiness is really a memory. It is barely an experience. There's the second wrong notion we have to get rid of then, and the third, and probably the most important wrong notion about happiness is that happiness is found in externals. You know, happiness is found in other things, in other people. I change my job, maybe I'll be happy. I'll change the place I'm living in, maybe I'll be happy. I'll marry somebody else, maybe I'll be happy. Happiness has nothing to do with externals. And so people think money, power, respectability, these bring happiness. They don't. Poor people can be happy. I remember reading the story of a Nazi prisoner. The poor man was tortured every day. And then one day, they changed his prison cell. You know, he had four bare walls. And in his new prison cell, he has a skylight through which he can see a patch of blue during the day and some stars at night. And the man is ecstatic. He writes home thrilled about this great good fortune. When I read that story, I looked out of my window and I had the whole expanse of nature to gaze at. I was free. I was not a prisoner. I could go wherever I wanted. And I didn't have a fraction of the joy of that poor prisoner. I remember reading a novel of a, a man, a prisoner in a Soviet concentration camp in Siberia. The poor man is awakened at 4 o'clock in the morning. They give him a chunk of bread. And the man thinks, I'd better keep some of this bread because I may need it at night. I cannot go to sleep because I'm hungry. And maybe if I eat it at night, I'll sleep. And then, at the end of the day, after working all day, he crawls into bed, he covers himself with a blanket that barely keeps him warm, and he's thinking, he's saying, it's been a good day today. Today I didn't have to work where the icy wind blows. And tonight, if I wake up hungry, I've got a piece of bread with me, so I'll eat it and I'll sleep well. Joy, happiness. Would you believe it? I met an extraordinary woman once. She was paralyzed from the neck down. Where did she find that joy that she seemed to perpetually have? Everybody would be asking that. One day she said to me, I have all the loveliest things in life. I can do all the loveliest things in life paralyzed, in hospital, full of joy. 
So joy is not found in externals. Get rid of that notion or else you'll never find it. There's another thing we have to get rid of if we want to find happiness and joy and that is change some of our wrong attitudes. What are those attitudes that need to be changed? The first attitude I would say is the attitude of the sulking child. You've ever seen a child who says, unless you play the game my way, I'm going home? That attitude. Examine yourself as I'm talking right now. Think of something that's making you unhappy and see if you can detect this sentence that you're saying almost unconsciously to yourself. You're saying, unless I get this or that or the other, I refuse to be happy. Unless this or that or the other is given to me or happens, I refuse to be happy. Lots of people are not happy because they're putting conditions to their happiness. So find out if that exists in your heart and drop it. There's a nice story of a man who was always pestering God with uh, all sorts of requests. So God appeared to him one day and said, look, I've had enough. Three requests, no more, three petitions. And after I've given you that, I'm going to give you nothing else. So make your wishes. And the man was delighted. He said, you mean you will give me any three things I asked for? And God said, yes, but nothing more. So the man said, you know, uh, I feel a little ashamed to say this, but uh, I'd like to get rid of my wife because uh, she's a nag and uh, she's always, you know, it's unbearable. I, I cannot live with her. So if I could uh, get rid of her, so God said, all right, your wish will be granted. And his wife died. Well, the man felt guilty about the relief he felt in his heart, but he felt happy. He felt relieved. He thought, I'll marry someone else who's more attractive. When the relatives and his friends came to the funeral, they began to praise this woman who had died. And the man suddenly came to his senses. He said, my God, here was this lovely woman and I hadn't even noticed her. I didn't appreciate her when she was living. So he felt awful about that. He went running back to God and he said, bring her back to life. So God said, all right, second wish granted. Now he had only one wish left. So he thought, what shall I ask for? And he consulted. And some of his friends said, ask for money. If you have money, you can get anything. And other friends said, what's the use of money if you have no health? And others said, what's the use of health if you have to die someday? Ask for immortality. So the poor man didn't know what to ask for because others would say, what's the use of living forever if you have no one to love you? Ask for love. So he thought and he thought and one year went by and five years and ten years and he hadn't asked for anything yet. So one day God appeared to him and said, when are you going to ask for that third wish of yours? And the poor man said, Lord, I'm all confused. I don't know what to ask for. Uh, could you tell me what to ask for? Could you advise me? And the Lord laughed when he heard that. He said, all right, 
I'll tell you what to ask for. Ask to be happy no matter what you get. There is the secret. So that's the first attitude to get rid of, the sulking child. The second attitude, the clinging child. You know, if you cling to your negative emotions, you're never going to be happy. Now, I don't mean you shouldn't have what we call negative emotions. You wouldn't be human. You would not be human if you didn't occasionally feel depressed and if you didn't sometimes feel anxious and if you didn't grieve at some loss, you wouldn't be human. That's all right. You can feel those negative emotions and let them go. You know what the bad thing here is when you cling to them? Try this exercise out. It's going to be a little difficult, but very rewarding. Your heartbreak, your jealousy, your guilt, your resentment. Ask yourself, what would happen if I let them go? You know, in the East, we have a thing called a koan. It's one of those deep spiritual exercises. It's a question, really, that the master puts to the disciple. A question that has no rational answer. For instance, what is the sound of one hand clapping? What was the shape of your face before you were born? That sort of thing. I'm going to give you a koan as an exercise. Ask yourself, what would happen if I dropped this negative emotion that I have, my guilt, my heartbreak, my jealousy, my resentment, etc.? If you stay with that question, if you stay with that koan, you know what's likely to happen? A fear will come up within you. And then continue to ask the question, what will happen? You may make a great discovery. I'm not going to say any more about this exercise. I'm going to go straight on to the next part of this program, namely, how can we attain happiness and joy? And I'm going to propose four simple exercises here, simple means of getting joy. The first one, I'm not going to tell you. You guess it from the story that I'm going to tell you. There's the great Japanese Zen master, Ryokan. Now, Ryokan lived at the foot of a hill and lived a very simple life. One day when he was away, a thief came to his house to steal, and he found nothing there. And while the thief was in the house, the master returned, and he caught him red-handed. And the master said, you have traveled a great distance to come to meet me. You must not go away empty-handed. And so he gave him his blanket and his clothes. He pressed them on the thief and said, here, take this. So the poor bewildered thief took this and slunk away. And after he had gone, the master sat at the door of his hut and looked at the gorgeous moonlight. And he thought, poor fellow, I wish I could have given him this gorgeous moon. 
what kind of an exercise is this story recommending? I keep you guessing for a while and I'll tell you later. You know, this exercise and the previous one, the koan, are excellent for long-term results. You want short-term results, you want to experience joy immediately, you want to experience happiness at once, try the following three other exercises that I am going to propose. The first, try saying how lucky I am, how grateful I am. Because you know something? It is impossible to be grateful and unhappy. There's the story of a man who comes running to his rabbi one day and he says, Rabbi, you've got to help me. My house is a hell. We're living in one room, me and my wife and my children and my in-laws, and it's a hell. There's no place there. The rabbi smiled and said, all right, I'll help you, but you've got to make a promise to do anything that I tell you. And the man said, I promise, I really promise. It's a solemn promise. And the rabbi said, how many animals do you have? And the man said, well, we've got a cow, we've got a goat, and we've got six chickens. The rabbi said, take the animals into the room and come back after a week. A man was stunned, but he had promised, see. So he went home depressed and he took the animals in. And the following week, he comes back in tears. He says, Rabbi, I'm going crazy. We're all going crazy. We're on the verge of a nervous breakdown. You've got to do something. What can we do? And the rabbi said, go home and put the animals out. Come back after a week. The man ran all the way home. And when he came back the following week, his eyes were aglow. He says, Rabbi, the house it's wonderful, so clean, it's a paradise. Get the point? I read a lovely sentence once of someone who said, I had no shoes, and I was always complaining that I had no shoes, until I met someone who had no feet. Think of that extraordinary woman, Helen Keller, dumb, blind, deaf, and yet rejoicing in life. If you can find it in your heart to be grateful, you will find the secret of happiness. Try this. Here's the third exercise I'm proposing, I would propose to you. Sometime later, put yourself in the place of that paralyzed woman that I talked to you about before, remember? Put yourself in her place. You could even lie flat on the floor, the better to get into that mood. Imagine that you're paralyzed and say the following sentence, that lovely sentence that I heard from her lips. I can do all the loveliest things in the world. I have the loveliest things in the world. Find out what those loveliest things are. You'll discover love, you'll discover taste and smell and sight and hearing, that you can hear the song of birds and the wind in the trees 
and the voices of your friends, and you can see their faces, you'll find them all. Maybe in doing this exercise, you will stumble upon the secret of gratitude. And here's one more exercise that you may want to try, a very simple one. Think of yesterday. Go over all the events that took place yesterday, one after the other. And at each event, be grateful. Say thanks. Remember in the previous program, when I talked to you about peace, I told you, say yes. So here, say thanks. How lucky I was. How lucky I was that that happened to me. Oh, and you will probably come to some things that were unpleasant and that you didn't like. Then stop. Is there a sulking child there? Is there a clinging child there? There isn't? All right, then think. That thing that happened to me, it has seeds for growth. It was placed there for my good. Think of that and say thanks and go on. There's one last exercise that I would like to propose, and this has to do with faith. The previous two had to do with gratitude. Remember how lucky I am, how grateful I am. This has to do with faith. The faith that everything is given by God and allowed by God for my good. There's an extraordinary English woman, Juliana of Norwich, and she writes in one of her books, The Showings of Divine Love, what I consider to be the loveliest sentence I have ever read in my whole life. She says, and all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. She says this in the context of a vision that she had, where she sees God holding the whole of the universe in his arms, lovingly, tenderly. Now here is the final exercise I suggest. I call it the blessing. Think of the events of the past, pleasant ones, unpleasant ones, and at each event say, it was well. It was well. And think of some of the things that you have now and that are happening to you now and say, it is well. It is well. And think of some of those things of the future and say, it will be well. It will be well. And see what happens to you. See how your faith will be changed into joy. Your faith that everything is in the hands of God and everything, as St. Paul tells us, will work for our good. Let me summarize then everything I've told you in this program. I told you why we are not happy. We have wrong notions, particularly that wrong notion that joy and happiness is in externals. There's an interesting story 
of this man who comes running to a monk that happens to be passing by his village. And he comes to the monk and says, give it to me, give me the stone, give me the precious stone. And the monk says, what stone are you talking about? And the man says, last night God appeared to me in a dream. And he said, a monk will be passing by the village tomorrow at noon. If he gives you a stone that he has in his sack, you will be the richest man in the country. So give me the stone. And the monk rummaged in his sack and he pulled out a diamond, the largest diamond in the world. It was the size of a man's head. And he says, is this the stone you want? I found it in the forest. If you want it, take it. So the man grabbed the stone and went running all the way home. But he couldn't sleep that night. And early next morning, he came to where the monk was sleeping under a tree and he woke him up and he said, here, take this diamond back. Give me the inner riches that makes it possible for you to give this stone away. That is what we have to discover if we want to find joy. And I've given you five exercises as a help to attain that. The koan, remember, ask yourself that question. Why, what would happen to me if I gave up my negative feelings? The second exercise, I didn't make it explicit, but it is the same exercise that I suggested in the first and the second program. Looking, hearing, getting in touch with your body sensations, and you will be overtaken by silence and peace and joy. And then I gave you three exercises for short-term results. The identification, I call it. Namely, identify with that paralyzed woman. The exclamation, how lucky I am, how grateful I am. And the blessing, it was well, it is well, it will be well. In the next program, I will be talking to you about life. But when this program gets over, within a minute or two, I would suggest that you stay there. If you're listening to this program in a group, some of you may want to lie on the floor and identify with that paralyzed woman. Some of you may want to sit right where you are and close your eyes and do one of the other exercises that I recommended. There's just one objection that some of you may have before you get into this exercise. You may think, is this prayer? Because you know, we're not talking to God. Think what a lovely prayer it is, how it would gladden the heart of God when he sees his children optimistic, grateful, happy, there is no sweeter prayer on earth than a grateful heart. If you ever get that, then the whole of your life will become a prayer, and the whole of creation will become a temple and a church.
in the last program I talked to you about joy. Today I want to talk to you about life. There's an interesting story about Buddha that he was sitting one day surrounded by all his disciples when an angel appeared to him and said, how long do you want to live? Ask for a million years and they will be given to you. And Buddha said unhesitatingly, 80 years. When the angel disappeared, his disappointed disciples complained to Buddha. They said, Master, why didn't you ask to live for a million years? Think of the good you would have done to hundreds of generations. And the old man replied with a smile, if I lived to be a million years, people will be more interested in prolonging their lives than in seeking for wisdom. You know what he meant? They would be more interested in surviving than, improving, than in improving the quality of their lives. And how true that is. How few people spend any of their time and their energy in improving the quality of their existence. I'm reminded of an actor saying to another in a movie that I saw some time ago, says the actor, you know, John, when you come to die, you will die without ever having lived. People well, seem to be alive. They're breathing, they're eating, they're talking, they're, they're conversing, they're moving around. But they're not dead, of course. But are they alive? They're neither dead nor alive, really. Now, you might say, could I be one of those? Well, here's a checklist for you. What does it mean to be really alive? It means three things. It means to be you, to be now, and to be here. Let's talk about those three things. To be alive means to be you. And in the measure that you are you, you are alive. You will say, am I not me? Uh, who would I be if I'm not me? Well, it's quite possible that you may not be you, that you may be a puppet. Let me explain that. Suppose we had a dog and we inserted an electronic receptor in the brain of that dog and then we sent that dog off to another country, to China, let's say. And then from here, we keep sending signals to that dog. We say, stand up, and the dog stands up. We say, sit down, and the dog sits down. We say, lie down, and the dog lies down. And everybody is amazed. Uh, what's happening to this dog? You know what's happening? He is subject to remote control. Now that is a pretty good image of millions of people. People come to me so often to consult me about their spiritual problems, about their emotional problems. And again and again, I find myself asking myself, to what voices is this person here responding? To what voice of the past? Here's a person who's depressed. Here's another one who's anxious. There's a third one who's prejudiced. Have you ever heard that saying of Albert Einstein 
that it is more difficult to disintegrate a prejudice than the atom? Well, here you have these people who are really not themselves at all. They're controlled. Now, what is the result of that? They become puppets. They have mechanical behavior, mechanical feelings, mechanical attitudes and convictions, not alive feelings, not alive behavior. And they don't know it. Because as I told you, they're responding to voices, the voices of people from the past, the voices of past experiences. They've had some experiences that affect them and control them. So they are not free and not alive. Well, this is what I consider to be a major obstacle in the spiritual life. Remember that phrase of Jesus when he says, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate your father and mother? Well, that's a strong word, hate. And people are scandalized by it. What does that mean? Surely Jesus doesn't mean that we must hate our real father and mother. Poor things, we must love them as we love all other human beings. I think that the father and mother that Jesus is talking about is the father and mother we carry around in our heads that control those voices. That is what we must drop. That is what we must give up so that we will give up our mechanical existence. We will stop being puppets. Because how can you have a spiritual life, I ask you, if you are not alive? How can you be a disciple of Jesus? if you're mechanical, if you are a puppet. All right? So then how do we drop the mechanicalness in our life? I'm going to give you an exercise that seems so simple that you'd hardly believe that it works, but it isn't an easy one. And if you persevere in it, you will see the difference. And the exercise is this. You could even try it out as I am talking to you. Think of an event in the recent past, something that happened yesterday, something that happened in the past week. Uh, it could even be an unpleasant event. In fact, if it is unpleasant, the better. And what I want you to do now is observe yourself reacting. How are you reacting emotionally? And what kind of convictions and attitudes, of course, you won't call them prejudices, but what kind of convictions and attitudes do you have in that event? Just look at that and ask yourself, what voice am I responding to? Or you could say, is somebody else reacting there for me? Someone that I am carrying around from the past? Now, this exercise has lasted a few seconds or a minute at the most. If you really want to get what it brings, then you'll have to take more time and observe various events of the day. Look at yourself reacting. Just look. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Don't approve. Just be a neutral observer and look. 
you need not even ask that question that I suggested. You know, what am I reacting to or who is reacting in me? What voice am I responding to? You need not even ask that if that distracts you. Just look. And the mechanicalness will drop and the life will, be, will begin to come in. And you will notice the change. In the last program, I spoke to you about this paralyzed woman, remember? Well, I'm going to talk to you in this program about an extraordinary paralyzed man that I met. He said to me, you know, Father, I really began to live after I became paralyzed. Because for the first time in my life, I had the time to look at myself and to see my life and to see how I was reacting and to see how I was thinking. And as a result, life has become so much deeper and richer and much more uh, appealing than it has ever been before. Isn't that interesting? That a paralyzed man would find life and so many people who would be moving around freely would not find it because they would be paralyzed inside. That is the great block. No time. That's what they tell me everywhere. We have no time. Where are we going to find the time for this? Well, what are you spending your time on? On maintaining this mechanical existence of yours? You know, it reminds me of that mugger who says to a man, your money or your life. And the man says, well, you better take my life because I need my money for my old age. Now, if you find that funny, think of this. Think of people saying, well, you better take my life because I need my time to maintain my puppet existence. If it wasn't a tragedy, it would really be funny. Well, this is, let me summarize then what I have given to you in when I spoke to you about being you. I said, observe your reactions at every event of the day. Observe your convictions. Question them. Are you open to questioning your convictions? If you're not, you're prejudiced, you're mechanical. I'm reminded of a brilliant young rabbi who succeeded an equally brilliant father, who was also a rabbi. His people said to him, Rabbi, you are completely unlike your father. And the young man laughed. He said, I'm exactly like my father. My father imitated no one. I imitate no one. He was not a carbon copy. Neither am I. That's what it means to be alive, to be unique, to drop those voices and the remote control. And you will get it through observation. There is a second thing that you need to be alive, and that is to be now. What does that mean? That means to understand, first of all, something that very few people understand, namely 
that the past is unreal, that the future is unreal, and to live in the past and to live in the future is to be dead. Oh, I know there are wonderful things in the past and we can learn lessons from the past and the past has influenced and shaped us, etc. Fine, but it's not real. And we must plan for the future and that's excellent. In fact, if you hadn't planned for the future, in all likelihood you wouldn't be listening to me now. That's fine, but the future isn't real. It is a notion in our heads. And as long as you live in the past and in the future, you're not now, you're not here. Let me explain that by means of a comparison. Suppose there's a family that's going on a trip to Switzerland for a three-day vacation, and they spend months on end planning that vacation. And the moment they get there, they're spending most of their time planning their trip back. And you know, when they are there, instead of taking in all of that gorgeous scenery, instead of soaking in the atmosphere, they're busy taking pictures, which they will show to their friends when they get back, pictures of places where they never were. Well, they were there physically, but they weren't really there. They were somewhere else. Unreal vacation, unreal lives, you know, we live in a future culture, the culture of tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll be happy. Tomorrow I'll live. Like, as soon as I get through high school, I will live. As soon as I get through college, I'll live. Then when you've got to college, you say, well, when I get married, I'll live. And then after you're married, you say, well, when the children grow up, I'll live. And by the time the children have grown up, you don't know what it means to live. And in all likelihood, you will die without having ever lived. You ready for a shock? Listen. Examine your own life. Watch all your thinking. And think how often you are in the past and the future. How many minutes of your day are spent in the past or in the future, you might get a shock because you might realize how little you are in the present, how little alive you are. Think of it this way. You're peeling this orange so that you will eat it. Now, if your mind is all fixed only on the eating of the orange, you know what's likely to happen? In all likelihood, you're not peeling the orange because you're not there. And when you come to eat that orange, you will not eat the orange because you will be somewhere else. Like the story of that boatman, this wise and ancient boatman who is carrying pilgrims across the river in his boat so that they can go to a shrine. Now one day someone says to the boatman, didn't you ever go to the shrine? And the boatman says, no, not yet because I still haven't taken in everything that the river has to offer me. This river, I find peace here. I find wisdom. I find God. But these poor pilgrims, they don't even notice the river. Their minds are all set on the shrine. They don't see it. 
could that be the story of our lives that we're washing the cup to drink the coffee and so we're really not washing the cup because we're not there and we never drink the coffee because we're not there and so it goes on and on and on. That would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? We would have missed out on life. Well, how would we remedy that? There's another story of Buddha. I told you one at the beginning of this program. Well, the legend in India says that Buddha traveled all through India in search of enlightenment. He went to the greatest masters of his time. He practiced all the disciplines and spiritualities available, but he couldn't get what we in India call enlightenment. Till finally he gave up in despair. And so the story goes, he sat under a Bodhi tree and he was enlightened. It happened. Years later, his disciple said to him, now master, tell us the secret of enlightenment. How could we get it? And of course, there is no secret. There is no technique. And the old man attempted to explain this to them, but they still wanted a technique. So Buddha, I imagine with a twinkle in his eye, said, all right, I'll give you a technique. Do this. When you are breathing in, be aware that you are breathing in. And when you are breathing out, be aware that you are breathing out, period. Isn't that extraordinary? doesn't seem very spiritual. Do you know what he had in mind? He wanted them to come into the present. Because he knew, enlightened man that he was, that God is not tomorrow. God is now. Life is not tomorrow. Life is now. Love is not tomorrow. Love is now. Enlightenment is now. If you would come into the present, it might happen. You can't produce it, but it might happen. That's pretty similar to that exercise I gave you when I spoke to you about peace, remember? I said, do one thing at a time and internally verbalize what you're doing. Now that's a very good exercise too for coming into the present, for coming into the now, for coming alive. Good. So that's the second thing that you need in order to be alive. To be you, to be now, I said, and here comes the third thing. To be here. What does that mean? That means to come out of your head and come to your senses, quite literally, to get out of abstractions and come into experience. Now that might seem rather difficult to understand. Let me explain it by means of a simple story. There's the story of an American soldier in the Korean War some years ago. He was homesick as Thanksgiving Day was approaching. And a Korean couple that had spent many years in the States invited him over for Thanksgiving dinner. When the man got there, 
to his great surprise and joy, he finds that they have prepared turkey and Canberra sauce, and that happened to be his favorite dish. So he gave himself a generous helping of the turkey. And right at the beginning of the meal, he gets into an argument with his host. And by the time the argument ended, the meal ended too. And the poor soldier realizes at the end of the meal that he, he hasn't enjoyed the meal. He hadn't even tasted the turkey. That is what I mean by come into the here. Now, you know, arguments are fine. Ideas are fine. But ideas are not life. They're excellent to guide us in life, but they are not life. Abstractions are not life. Life is found in experience. It's like the menu. You're reading the menu. That's wonderful. You could guide yourself by that menu, but the menu is not the food, you know. And if you spend all your time with the menu, you will never get to eat the food. And sometimes it's even worse. There are people, not literally, of course, there are people who are eating the menu. They're living on ideas. They missed out on life. Well, what can you do then to overcome this? Oh, there is something else I want to tell you here connected with this that will help you to understand it better. There is this contemporary Indian mystic Krishnamurti who says the following powerful and deep sentence. He says, the day we teach a child the name of a bird, the child ceases to see that bird again. You know, the child watches this fluffy, alive thing, so full of mystery and wonder, and we teach the child sparrow, sparrow. So now the child has an idea, sparrow. So later, every time it sees the sparrow, it says, well, we know, sparrow. It's like me, I've got an idea, American in my head, let us suppose. And then every time I see a person who is an American by nationality, I say, oh, well, American. And I miss the uniqueness of this individual. When was it last that you experienced the wonder of a child when he looks or she looks at this mysterious, vibrant, vibrating, vibrant thing that we call a sparrow? You see, that word, that idea, comes in the way. The word, the idea, sparrow, can be an obstacle to your seeing the sparrow. That word, that idea, American, can be an obstacle to my really seeing this American here in front of me. Just as I told you in that very first program, that the word and the idea, God, can be an obstacle to my seeing God. Well, how would we remedy this? You can do it right now, even as I'm talking to you. Listen to the sound of my voice and any other sounds that you may pick up in the surroundings. Can you hear any others? Big sounds, small sounds, together with the sound of my voice. You know what happens when you do this? You are coming to your senses, and that is where the experience is. There's no abstraction there, no idea there. 
and later get to the senses precisely in this way, look at what you are looking, hear what you are hearing, touch what you are touching. There's this famous guru who gets enlightenment, so the story says, and his disciples say to him, Master, what did you get as a result of enlightenment? What did enlightenment give you? And the man says, well, I'll tell you what it gave me. When I eat, I eat. When I look, I look. When I hear, I hear. That's what it gave me. But his bewildered disciple said, but, but everybody does that. And the master laughed and he said, well, if everybody does that, then everybody is enlightened. Because the fact of the matter is that hardly anybody does that. Hardly anybody is here and alive. Good. I will be talking to you in the next program about freedom, which is intimately linked with life. It's really another aspect of life. But before I end this one, I want to summarize what I've said to you. I said, to be alive means to be you. To be alive means to be here. And to be alive means to be now. And I gave you two exercises which I consider to be among the greatest of spiritual exercises, even though they don't seem to be spiritual. And which were those? A, observe yourself in the measure that you observe yourself non-judgmentally, like a neutral observer. In the measure that you do this, you will get rid of your mechanicalness and your puppet existence, and you will be, a dis you will be able to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can't be a disciple of Jesus Christ if you're a puppet. If you are only one-tenth alive, you are only one-tenth able to be his disciple. You get the point? That's why it's a great spiritual exercise. And the second great spiritual exercise, experience reality. Come to your senses. That will bring you into the now. That will bring you into experience. And it is in the now that God is to be found. Well, let me end by bringing up an objection which some of you there are likely to have to these two exercises. You will say, is this prayer really? Because prayer is talking to God, isn't it? That's right, prayer is talking to God. But you know, you may not be talking, but you may be saying a great deal to God. Think of a mother who is ill and her daughter cleans up the house, fixes the meals, helps with the gardening. She's not talking to her mother, but how much she is saying to her. These exercises that I've proposed are not easy. They can be painful when you watch yourself and discover how mechanical they are, you are. It isn't easy to find the time for all of this. But you're doing this so that you will come alive. How much you are saying to God, because God is found in life, isn't he?
the great German theologian Bonhoeffer put it powerfully when he said, Jesus Christ calls us not to a new religion, but to life. Well, get into life and you will be answering the call of Jesus Christ. In the last program, I talked to you about life. Today, I'd like to talk to you about freedom. Now, the freedom I'm talking about has nothing to do with totalitarian regimes or prisons. Uh, the freedom I'm talking about is something else. There is this Japanese general that I read about once who was arrested by his enemies and thrown into prison. And the man knew that the next day he was going to be tortured. So he couldn't sleep. He kept tossing about in bed in his prison cell. And then suddenly, he came to a realization. He said, when am I going to be tortured? Tomorrow. But tomorrow isn't real. That's what his Zen master had taught him. And the moment he realized this, he calmed down and fell asleep on the realization that the only real thing is now. So off to sleep he went. He was in prison, but he was a free man. The enemies to freedom are not outside of us. The enemies are here. The chains that bind us are here. And in this program, I want to talk to you about those chains. We're going to take them one at a time because there are quite a few. The first chain that binds us and prevents us from being free are the bad experiences of the past. That's easy enough to understand. You have someone who lost his mother when he was eight years old and he is so damaged and crippled by that experience that he won't come close to anyone anymore now you have a woman who was sexually assaulted maybe when she was a child and now she's afraid of all men you have a man who was unjustly accused and thrown out of his job and his whole life is poisoned by bitterness. See bad experiences from the past. A woman who sees all the tremendous opportunities that are open to her children, and she regrets the fact that she was poor when she was a child, and that she never had those opportunities. And she's full of complaints. Or I remember a friend of mine who was so guilty that he arrived late at the deathbed of his father. Somehow he couldn't forgive himself for that, even though he wasn't to blame. And every now and then the memory of that would come back and he would get all immobilized. So the first thing that chains us and prevents us from being free and alive are the bad experiences of the past. How would we break those chains? How would we become free again? 
Here is a simple exercise that I would like to offer you to get that. What you're going to need for it is faith and gratitude. Try this. If you realize that you are being influenced by one of these bad experiences of the past, then in a moment of peace and quiet, because you're going to need some time for this, don't do it when you're in a hurry now, in some time of peace and quiet, go back to that experience. Don't get immersed in it now. Stay away some distance from it, so to speak, and speak to the Lord. You could even imagine that the Lord is there next to you. And you say to him, Lord, it, this is difficult, but I really believe, I trust, that if you allowed this to happen, it was for my good. I may not be able to see the good, but I trust that it is there. Now do it gently. Don't be violent. Don't force yourself. Don't push. If you find you're revolting too much, all right, let it be, and go at it another day. That's important. In fact, what's likely to happen is, as you begin to do, do this, you might feel anger welling up within your heart. Well, get angry. It's all right. That's a good prayer. And the Lord appreciates that. He appreciates honesty. And then leave it for another day. See, this is something that's likely to take time because freedom isn't quickly achieved. Well, when you can find it in your heart to really say this to the Lord, that you believe that it is for your good, then you move on to the next step. Thank him for it. And when you can really thank him for it and thank him for the good that he is going to draw out of it, you will be released, the chain will be broken. One chain less to tie you down. Another type of chain that ties us down inside, the good experiences of the past. Now, you will be a bit astonished to hear that because good experiences are wonderful. In fact, it's even good occasionally to go back and relive them and be nourished by them again. But there is a danger there. You know what the danger is? That you might catch that disease called nostalgia. If you are suffering from nostalgia, you know what has happened to you? You've stopped living because you've abandoned the present. And there is something else that you're likely to do. You're likely to even destroy the present. Let me explain that. Let's suppose you had a lovely experience with a friend. You were sitting down with him, watching the sunset. And that was a marvelous experience. The next time you are with your friend, you go out to dinner, let's say, or you go for a stroll and talk. Now, you know what you are likely to do? You're likely to take that beautiful experience of the past, that experience of the sunset, and put it in a silver casket and carry it around with you. So while you are strolling with your friend, you sort of secretly open your silver casket and you take a look at it, and you say, oh, this one is not as good as the past experience. You see what you've done? 
thanks to that experience of the past, you destroyed the present. You're going to be less alive and less free. That beautiful experience of the past chains you down. How would you get rid of this? Here is what I suggest you do. Now, I'm warning you, this might be somewhat painful. Prayer can be painful, you know. To give birth to new life can be painful. So what do you do? Think of some of the people you loved in the past and who are no more with you, either because they are separated or because they have died. And you talk to each one of these people. You say something like this, how lucky I was that you came into my life. How grateful I am to you. I will love you always. And now, goodbye. I must go. Because if I cling to you, I will not learn to love the present. And I will not learn to love the people I am with right now. So goodbye. You can see how painful that can be. And then you move on to some of those lovely experiences that you had in the past. And you personalize them. And you think of each one of them. And you say, how wonderful it was that I had you. I'm so grateful. And now, goodbye. That may be somewhat more painful, you know. And here comes one which some of you might find even more painful. You think of some of the possessions of the past, things that you treasured, like your youth, your strength, your good looks maybe, and you personalize them. Now this may sound a little childish to some of you, but don't be afraid to be like a little child. You may find the kingdom. So you personalize this thing, and you talk to it. You have a dialogue with it. And you say, how wonderful it was to have you. How grateful I am that I had you in my life. And now, goodbye. I must go. You know, lots of aging people never really live and never taste all the sweetness and depth and richness that old age brings because they haven't let go of youth and strength and vitality. As the poet says so beautifully, the best is yet to be, the last of life for which the first was made. The best is yet to be. Many people miss out on the best period of life, their old age, because they are too centered on the past. They are enchained by the good experiences of the past. So that is two chains that we have dealt with that prevent us from being free. You know, a bird that is crippled and damaged cannot fly, but a bird that clings to the branch of a tree cannot fly either. So stop clinging to the past. The Hindus in my country, in India, have a very lovely saying, a very lovely religious saying. They say, water remains pure by flowing. The holy person remains pure by going. I put it this way, water remains sparkling and fresh and alive and free by flowing. 
you will remain that way by going. I love you. I am grateful to you. Goodbye. And now comes the third chain. And the third chain is anxieties and fears for the future. Remember that Japanese general I spoke to you about? Jesus is saying the same thing in more poetic language, language when he says, look at the birds of the air, look at the lilies of the field. They are not anxious. So don't be anxious, says Jesus. Now easily said, but how hard to attain in reality. In fact, it's so wonderful to think that Jesus himself broke down before he died. Temporarily, he was depressed, he was anxious. And if we want to break that chain of anxiety for the future, we must do what Jesus himself did. What I recommend is take that fear that you have and talk to it, once again, as if it were a person. Lovingly now, no violence, because that fear is there mistakenly to protect you. So you talk to the fear and say, well, I understand why you are here, but it's all right, I'm going to trust the Lord. And you turn to the Lord and tell him that. And if you can find it in your heart to do this, thank him in advance for the outcome. That will be a great help. Thank the Lord for whatever is going to happen. The next inner chain that keeps us slaves also has to do with the future ambitions. Now to have ambition can be a wonderful thing, but to be enslaved by ambition, that's awful. People who are just driven by ambition, they don't even live. Now there's no need to explain that. We all know people like this. What do you do if you happen to be the victim of this kind of ambition? Well, something similar. Stand in the presence of the Lord, make an act of faith that the future is in his hands, and you say something like this to him. You say, Lord, I trust that you are in control of the future. I'm going to do everything in my power to make my dreams come true, but I leave the result in your hands. And then you imagine that you let go, and you thank him ahead of time for the outcome. That will bring you a measure of peace and freedom. The next chain, you see we are going pretty rapidly one after the other, clinging to present things. The human heart is a great clinger, and I don't have to tell you that because every human being experiences that. We become possessive of persons, of things. We don't want to be separated from them. We become dependent on them. We lose our freedom. And frequently when there are persons involved, we don't leave them free either. Here is an exercise that I suggest to liberate our hearts from this kind of clinging. You take a person that you are deeply attached to, but so attached that you are dependent and possessive and you don't want to let go. 
Again, talk to that person in imagination. Imagine the person is sitting there, right there in front of you, and you talk to the person. Talk lovingly. Tell the person what he or she means to you. And then add the following formula, which in the beginning you might find painful. And as I told you before, don't force yourself. If it is too painful, let it go. Come to it another time when you may be more ready. And the formula is this. You say, how precious you are to me. How dear and how lovely. But you are not my life. I have a life to live, a destiny to fulfill that is separate from you. Painful words, but so charged with grace and with life. And then you take things, you take places, you take occupations, things that are precious to you and you find very hard to let go so that they enslave you. And you say something similar to each one of them, how precious you are, but you are not my life. I have a life to live, a destiny to meet that is separate from you. And then say it to the things that are most intimate to you, things that are almost part of your being, your reputation, your health. Say it to life itself, which one day will be swallowed up in death. Say how precious you are, how lovely, but you are not my life. I have a life to live and a destiny to meet that is separate from you. Hopefully, as a result of courageously saying this formula, you will attain to spiritual freedom. There is yet another chain that I have to speak of, but I am not going to name it right now. I will talk about it later. What I'm going to do now is give you an exercise and then we will talk about this chain. Remember, we spoke about bad experiences of the past, good experiences of the past, future fears, future ambitions, present clinging. And now here comes what I consider to be the most powerful chain of all, the most difficult to break. Try this exercise. You may not be able to do it right now. You may need a little more time and peace in which to do it. But you are sitting there listening to me. Now think, what existed on this spot where I am sitting a hundred years ago? Use your imagination, go on. What existed on this spot? a hundred years ago. Then take a bigger leap and think or imagine what existed on this spot 3,000 years ago. Now that is a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ, 3,000 years ago. 
and yet it is relatively recent history, you know, because scientists tell us that life has existed on this planet anywhere from 3 to 15 million years. Imagine that if you can. All right, so 3,000 years ago, what existed on this spot? And 3,000 years hence, what will exist on this spot on which I am sitting right now? Will there be a desert here? Will there be a jungle? Will there be another civilization? Of one thing you can be quite sure, if there are people there, they won't be talking your language, they won't have your customs, they will belong to another culture. No language has survived as a living language for 3,000 years. So try to imagine that. And then it is as if you come to Earth 3,000 years hence, and you are searching for this place, and you're looking for any remains of your existence. Do that. And you know what will happen to you? You will experience a sense of vastness, a kind of a freeing sense. You know what you are being freed from? From delusion. The delusion of thinking that you matter. Because you know, except in the eyes of God, you and I do not really matter. We're not as important as we think. Think of one of those birds that Jesus speaks of. Think of one of those lilies, those flowers of the field that he speaks of. Think of a grain of sand. Think of a drop of water, a raindrop. Think of yourself. That is what you are. How insignificant. If you are able to do this exercise successfully, you will be liberated from the strongest tyranny of them all, which is the tyranny of the self. You will experience liberation, relief, and freedom. Because there is no one who is so free and so alive as the person who has accepted his or her death and his or her insignificance. The exercise will give you perspective and vastness. But as I said, you'll need time, you need 15 or 20 minutes to really get into it. Try it out when you have the time. Well, I was about to summarize this program for you, but before I do that, I want to give you one last exercise, which I call the mysterious exercise. And you'll soon see why it is mysterious simply because you won't see the connection in the beginning between this exercise that I'm going to give you and freedom. What is this mysterious exercise? It consists in the following. Get in touch with the sensations that you experience in your body. The way I told you to when I talked about peace, remember? All right, so get in touch with those sensations 
in your body. And after you've done this for a while, be aware of the one who is observing those sensations. And say, in, in innerly, internally, say, I am not those sensations. I am not this body. Then be aware of your thinking, those thoughts that keep going around in your mind. And after a while, turn your attention to the one who is observing the thoughts and say, I am not these thoughts, or I am not my thoughts. And then become aware of your feelings or recall some feelings that you have had in the past, especially in the recent past, anxiety, depression, guilt, whatever. And after a while, turn your attention to the one who is observing those feelings or the one who is recalling the feelings. And you say, I am not these feelings. I am not my feelings. You say you are anxious, but that is because you have identified with your anxiety. I am not the anxiety. You say you are depressed. Don't identify with the depression. I am not the depression. I call this a mysterious exercise. It is one of the great spiritual exercises that is given in the East. Mysterious, because you don't notice the result immediately, but it has its effect unfailingly, and it breaks that deepest of all the chains that I called a little while ago, the chain of delusion, the tyranny of the self. To summarize then, I have given you quite a few exercises in this program. In the next one, I will be talking about love, which again is related to life and related to freedom. What I would suggest at the end of this program is that you stay there as I have exhorted you to do in all of these programs. Be silent for a few minutes. Stay in your chairs and practice any of the exercises that I suggested and that appealed to you. I've given you two exercises that I would call long-term exercises. The one on perspective, remember? Like 3,000 years ago, 3,000 years hence, that one. And the second long-term exercise, this mysterious one, I am not my feelings, I am not my thoughts, etc. And then I have given you a number of other exercises to deal with your slavery, with those chains, on a short-term basis, so to speak. Well, before I end, let me tell you one last story. It is the story, again, of a free person. It's a story of a girl in a fishing village who became an unwed mother. And her parents beat her till the girl confessed who the father was. She said, 
it was the master, the Zen master, living in that temple outside the village. The parents were indignant, and so were all the villagers, and they trooped to the temple after that baby was born. They took the baby with them and placed the baby at there before the Zen master. And they said, you hypocrite, this child is yours. You look after it. And all that the master said was, very well, very well. And he picked up the baby and he gave it to one of the women in the village to look after at his expense. Well, after this, the master had lost his reputation, his disciples abandoned him, no one went to consult him. And this went on for some months. When the girl saw this, she could take it no longer. And so she finally blurted out the truth. The father of that child was really not the master. It was a boy living next door. Well, when the parents heard that, they and the rest of the villagers rushed to the temple. They prostrated themselves in front of the master. They begged his pardon, and they asked to have the baby back. And the master gave them the baby back. And all he said was, oh, very well, very well. There is a free person, a person who is capable of suffering, but has attained that perspective that I was talking to you about. My wish for you and for me is that as a result of our poor efforts, God will give us this gift too. In the course of this series on a way to God, for today, I have talked to you about peace and joy and silence and life and freedom. I have kept the most rewarding and possibly the most difficult topic for the end. Today, I want to talk to you about love. I said it is possibly the most difficult topic because love is something that is so vast, it's almost like God himself in its vastness and its mystery. We human beings sort of get a glimpse into love now and then. We understand it dimly, but I don't think anyone really comprehends this mysterious thing that we call love. What I am going to do in the program now is dwell on just two aspects of love. And I call them the aspect of love as creation and love as identification. Let me talk about love as creation. And I'll illustrate what I mean by that by means of a lovely American Indian tale. It's one of my favorites. There is this Indian warrior who finds the egg of an eagle on a mountain top. And then he places that egg with the other eggs that were being hatched by a hen. 
and in due course, the little chickens came out, they were hatched, and the little eaglet was hatched too. And the little eaglet grew up surrounded by these chickens, and after a while, he learned to cluck like the chickens, he learned to scratch and claw at the earth and peck for worms, and he would flap his wings and just managed to get onto one of those low-lying branches, just like the other chickens. And all his life, he lived with the consciousness that he was a chicken. Now one day, when this eagle had grown old, he happened to look up into the sky, and he saw a magnificent sight. There in the clear blue sky was a majestic, bird, gliding where the strong currents of winds blew without the slightest discernible effort. The old eagle was impressed, and he turned to the chicken next to him and said, Who's that? And the chicken looked up and said, Oh, that, that's the golden eagle, the king of the birds. Don't give it another thought. You and I are not like that. And so the old eagle never gave it another thought. And he died with the consciousness that he was a chicken. Because that is the way everybody had treated him. And that is the way he grew up. You know what love as creation means? It means to look at that eagle and give him the consciousness of who he truly is so that he would spread his wings and become a golden eagle. And in doing that, you create the eagle in him. There is a famous American psychologist who, together with a team some years ago, conducted a very interesting experiment in a high school here in the United States. You know what he did? He gave all the children in a high school an IQ test. Now, this was just before promotion, before the kids went on to the next class. Now, those IQ tests were given to the teachers, but not quite. These psychologists picked 10 or 12 names and they said to every one of the teachers, these 10 children will be coming into your class. You know from the tests it is clear that they are what is technically known as spurters. So you can expect them to spurt ahead in the course of the next academic year. Only you must promise never to say this to the children because it might do them damage. And the children and the teachers promised they would not say this to the children. The fact is that there was no such technical word as spurter, and that the experimenters had just taken any 10 or 12 names at random and given them to the, te to the teachers. Well, after a year, they came back to the school, and they tested all the children again. And what do you think had happened? Every one of those spurters had increased his or her IQ by a minimum of 12 points. Some had increased it by as much as 36 points. 
the experimenters interviewed the teachers. They said, you know, what did you think of these kids? And the teachers, interestingly enough, were using adjectives like curious, affectionate, lively, interested, etc., for these kids. What would have happened to those kids if the teachers had not felt, rightly or wrongly, that they had budding geniuses in their classrooms? Were those qualities really in the kids? They evidently were. But you know, those teachers drew them out. Later, this psychologist tried the same experiment in other schools. They even tried it with animals, and always with success. You know, uh, they would tell some psychology students who would be experimenting with rats, they'd say, we're going to give you a new breed of rats that will perform better. And what do you know? Those rats were performing better, though they were the same breed. And they found out that it was because the students were treating them with more respect or something. They were expecting this from the rats, and the rats were living up to their expectations. It was somehow communicated even to the animals. You know, when I first heard of that experiment, I thought of a great, great American whom some of you may still remember, Father Flanagan, who founded Boys Town. The man became a legend even in my country many years ago. He founded this place to help homeless boys in the beginning, but then later on he would help delinquent boys. And when the police would fail and everybody else would fail and they wouldn't know what to do with children, Flanagan would take them in. And the legend said that he never failed with these kids. I remember one interesting story that impressed me immensely. There was this eight-year-old boy who had murdered both his parents. Can you think what must have happened to that kid that he would have become violent at that young age? And he had been arrested again and again in armed bank robberies. The police did not know what to do with him because he was a minor. They couldn't take him to court. They couldn't send him to jail. They couldn't even send him to reformatory school because he had to be at least 12 years old for that. So in sheer desperation, they called Flanagan. They said, would you take this kid? And Flanagan said, sure, send him along. Now the boy, many years later, wrote his story. He said, I remember the day I was traveling to Boystown in that train with a policeman. And I was thinking, they're sending me to a priest. If that man tells me that he loves me, I'll kill him. And you know, the boy was a killer. Well, what happened? He went to Boystown, and the scene went something like this. There was a knock at the door, and Flanagan said, come in. And the boy walked in, and Flanagan says, well, whom do we have here? Dave, sir. Oh, 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 yes, yes, of course, Dave, welcome to Boystown. We were expecting you. Now that you're here, you will want to uh, look around, and you know, everybody here works for his living. Henry here will show you around, and then maybe you could choose an occupation, but take your time. Look around the place. That was all. I'll see you. Great. That was all. Nothing more. And the boy said that those few seconds changed his life. You know why? Because he said, for the first time in my life, I looked into the eyes of a man 
who, without using the words, was saying, not I love you, he was saying, you're good, you're not bad, you're good. And you know, the boy became good, because as, psych as psychologists tell us, we tend to become what we feel we are. Can you think of anything more spiritual and more divine than that? That we see goodness in someone and we communicate that to the person. And as a result, the person is transformed. The person is created. And that is the reason why it is said that the lover creates his beloved. He sees beauty there, and in the seeing, he draws it out. Well, people frequently asked Flanagan what the secret of his success was. And Flanagan would always brush it aside, but he had a motto, and the motto was, there is no such thing as a bad boy. See, Flanagan saw goodness there, and he drew that goodness out. He created it. And that is what I want to propose to you as love. One aspect of love, but a very beautiful and a very deep aspect of this thing that we call love. Well, would you like to get something of this charism that Flanagan had? I'm pretty sure there's not one of you who is listening to me who wouldn't want to share it, because we all want to love, don't we? If you want to develop that kind of charism, then you have to go to a school of love, and you will have to do some not difficult, but not too easy exercises, spiritual exercises, which I am going to propose to you right now. Try them out later when you have the time or at the end of this program. Try them out. What are these exercises? They're somewhat graded. You don't really have to follow the grading, but it would help if you did. Begin in the following fashion. Think of somebody whom you love. You love deeply, let's say. Imagine that that person is sitting there in front of you. And talk to that person. Talk lovingly. Tell that person what he or she means to you. What it has meant to you and to your life that this person came into your life. And as you do this, be in touch with what you're feeling. Then when you're all warm and aglow from this exercise, move on to the next one, the next step. Think of somebody whom you don't like, you don't particularly like. And you're standing there in front of this person. And as you are looking at that person, try to see something good in the person, to make allowances, to understand, and even to see goodness and good qualities there. If you find it hard to do this, then imagine that Jesus is standing there beside you, and he is looking at that person. Then he would become your teacher in the art of love, in the art of looking. 
What does he see there? What goodness, what beauty can he detect in that person? Incidentally, if Jesus were to come to earth again, what do you think is the first thing that he would notice in humanity? What do you think? You know what my guess is? I think the first thing that he would notice would be the immense amount of goodness, of trust, of sincerity, of sheer lovingness, to invent a word, that invades the whole of humanity. There are oceans of this among human beings, and he would notice it immediately. Because the good person notices goodness everywhere. And the person who is evil notices evil, because we tend to see in others, don't we, a reflection of ourselves. So you have Jesus here looking at this person. What does he see in him or her? And then if you can get yourself in imagination to say this to that person, you're already taking a step forward to seeing and creating by seeing. Having done that, you come to the third exercise. And some of you will probably find this one the most difficult of all. But don't shirk it. If you really want to become loving, you have to go through with it. And what does it consist of? You imagine that you have Jesus right there in front of you. And he talks to you. And he tells you all the goodness and the beauty and the lovely qualities that he sees in you. Now, if you are anything like what I am and like what most human beings are, you will probably shrink from that. You will immediately begin to accuse yourself of, oh, of all kinds of defects and sins. And Jesus will accept that. Because, you know, Jesus was no starry-eyed romanticist. When he saw evil, he called it by its name and he condemned it. But he would never condemn the sinner, though he condemned the sin. Think how he would look at a prostitute. You find it in the pages of the, of the Gospels. How he would look at a thief, at a hardened publican, even at the Pharisees and the people who were crucifying him. Well, here he is then, standing in front of you, and you accuse yourself of all of these sins, and he accepts them, and he admits that you do have all of those defects. But he understands. He makes allowances. And you notice an extraordinary thing. Those defects don't come in the way of his seeing goodness and beauty in you. That's not difficult to understand. Think of yourself. Think of someone whom you love. If you really look at that person, he or she has defects, isn't it? And yet, those defects don't come in the way of your really loving the person and seeing goodness in that person. So imagine that Jesus is doing this and see what effect that has on you. That is vitally important if you are going to be able to do the same for others that you accept this from him.
and from those who love you. When Jesus first met Simon Peter, the Gospels tell us, Simon, the fearful, the impulsive, he saw in that man something that no one would have suspected was there. And he nicknamed him the Rock. And that is what Peter became. Well, here is a variation of that exercise. Imagine that Jesus is standing right there in front of you. What name or what names does he invent for you? Before I move on to the next point, the other next aspect of love, I want to recount here a lovely fairy tale that you have in the West. You know these fairy tales? They contain a great deal of wisdom. This, the tale of the princess and the frog. There is this charming princess who goes for a walk in the woods one day and meets with this frog. And the frog greets her very courteously. And the princess is amazed that the frog would speak human language. But then the frog says, your royal highness, I'm not a frog really, I'm a prince. But a wicked fairy cast a spell on me and turned me into a frog. And the princess, being a soft-hearted uh, person, felt very bad about that. She said, isn't there something that can be done to break the spell? Oh yes, said the frog. The fairy said that if I would find a princess who would love me and keep me with her three days and three nights, the spell would be broken and I would become a prince again. Well, the princess already saw the prince there in that frog. So she took the frog back home with her to the palace. And everyone said, what's this loathsome creature you have brought, her, brought with you? But she said, oh no, it isn't a loathsome creature, it's a prince. And being a strong-willed girl, she kept the frog with her day and night, there at the table, sitting on her pillow while she slept. And after three days and three nights, she wakes up to find this handsome young prince who kisses her hand in gratitude for having broken the spell and turned him into a prince. You know, that fairy tale is the story of all of us. Somehow, we have been turned into frogs and we go through life looking for someone who will break the spell and create us. Is your Jesus like that? Is he as good as Flanagan? Is your God like that? You remember I told you in that first program that God is unknown. But when we make an image out of him, is he at least as good as the best of us? When you walk in, does your God say, angels, trumpets, here comes the prince, here comes the princess? Is that the way he treats you? even while he sees all of your defects. You may want to ponder on this because, you know, we tend to become like the God whom we adore. Let's get on to the next aspect of love. Love as identification. In my country, in India, the mystics and the poets have asked this question again and again, who is the holy person? 
and they come up with some beautiful answers. They say, the holy person is like a rose. Is it possible for a rose to say, I will give my fragrance only to good people who smell me, and I will withhold my fragrance from evil people? Not possible. That's not in the nature of the rose. And the holy person is like a lamp lit in a dark room. Can a lamp say, I will give my light only to the good people in this room and withhold my light from the bad people? And the holy person is like a tree that gives its shade to good people and bad people alike. And the poet Tulsidas says, the tree will give its shade even to the man who is chopping it down. And if it is a sweet smelling tree, it will leave its scent on the axe. Now, isn't that exactly like what Jesus tells us when he tells us that we must be all compassionate as our heavenly Father is, who makes his rain to fall on good and bad alike, and who makes his sun to shine on saints and sinners alike? How would we ever get to this kind of love? By realization by a mystical realization or experience. What does that mean? You remember how when I was talking about silence in that very first program, I told you that God is something like a dancer and the whole of creation is a dance, and that the dancer and the dance are not two. They're not one, but they're not two. Well, if you ever got the experience that you and the people around you are not two, not one, but not two. You know, something like we Christians say, God is three persons and one God. So we are millions of persons and one Christ. You know the way St. Paul puts it, don't you know we are all one body, members of one another? That image of the body, like my body and I, we're really not two. We're not the same thing. I am not my body, but we're not two. And how much I love my body. Even though that love which I feel for my body isn't a feeling at all. But whether a member of my body, a limb of my body is diseased or healthy, I love it just as much. So here it is, this realization that some lucky people are given, that they are different from others, but not separate. They're one body. You know, we have an interesting tale in India of seven crazy men who go to a neighboring village uh, for a kind of a big banquet. And they come home late at night drunk and crazy as they were before. So it begins to rain, and they all take shelter under a tree. And the next morning they wake up and there is loud lamentation. And a passerby stops there and says, what's going on? And they say, well, we huddled under this tree and our limbs got all mixed up, our legs and our hands. So we don't know whose legs and whose hands belong to whom. So the passerby said, well, that's easy. Give me a pin. Then he pricked one leg and the owner said, ouch. And the man says, that's your leg. And so he went on pricking different hands and legs and separating them. You know, when someone is hurt or someone 
is badly treated and I say, ouch, something has happened. Love as identification as not to. Can we do anything to get this grace? No, no, it is a gift. What all that we can do is prepare ourselves. How? You're going to find this hard to believe now, but you remember how I told you in that very first program that if we would sit and look, or we would sit and get in touch with ourselves, when I spoke about peace, we would come to a silence and things would be revealed to us. Well, all you can do is prepare the ground. And if you have been practicing this exercise, which I have really been recommending in almost every one of these programs, of sitting, of looking, of getting into the present, you are preparing yourself beautifully for this grace. Someday, hopefully, it may be given to you. So let me summarize what I have said then in this in this program. I gave you a somewhat lengthy series of exercises to practice, which will give you, let's put it this way, short-term results, fairly quick results, because you will notice the difference. And then I have given you this other exercise, hopefully, that would bring you love as identification. That would be a somewhat long-term result that God may give to you. In the first series of exercises, you will become loving. With this other exercise, you may become love. Christianity tells us that God is unknown. He is the mystery. And Christianity also makes an outstanding statement, which we find in the Bible, that God is love. Think of God, the unknown, not just as a noun. Could we think of him also as a verb, so that we could say, when you are loving, you are godding? Could we think of God not just as a person, but as an activity? So that when you are loving, you are godding. You are charged with divinity and with God and with grace. Well, this series of programs has been called A Way to God for Today. Can you think in this world that is torn by conflicts, suspicions, hatreds, wars, can you think of a better way to God for today than this one?